You can turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 7. We're going to be looking at Hebrews 7, verses 1 through 10 this morning. And you might want to put a bookmark in Genesis 14 and Psalm 110 as well. We're going to be spending a little bit of time there as well. What if I asked you, who is the most important figure in the Old Testament? R.C. Sproul uh, gave a question like that in a Sunday school study we did a couple years ago. Who is the most important figure in the Old Testament? Some of the most common names from Sunday school come to mind. Certainly one of the names at the top would be Abraham, the patriarch of Israel, the one, the, the single individual through whom God made the promises that would ultimately come and undo the curse. But what if I phrased it just a little bit differently? Not who's the most important, but who is the greatest figure of the Old Testament? Who is the greatest figure? Some of the same nine names would probably come to mind, maybe the exact same names. However, there's a name that probably doesn't come to our minds very quickly, if at all, that we absolutely would need to consider. And we're going to consider it this morning. Hebrews 7, starting in verse 1. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of, God, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. He is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness. And then he is also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life. But resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. See how great this man was, to whom Abraham the patriarch gave a tenth of the spoils. And those descendants of Levi who receive the priestly office have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people, that is from their brothers, though these, though these also are descended from Abraham. But this man, who does not have his descent from them, received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. It is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. In the one case, tithes are received by mortal men, but in the other case, by one of whom it is testified that he lives. One might even say that Levi himself, who received tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, for he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would give us eyes to see this morning. Eyes to see and understand Melchizedek so that in turn we would fix our eyes and worship Christ with true and genuine and full hearts. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So what if I 
told you that the greatest figure in the Old Testament was this obscure, mysterious man uh, who appears just as quickly as he disappears in the narrative, who receives no more than four Bible verses in the Old Testament, who doesn't win any battles, who doesn't belong to any great families, who, who isn't present during any miracles or perform any miracles. I mean, a legitimate question is, who or what, what is so great about Melchizedek? At the beginning of chapter 7 of Hebrews, the author of Hebrews wants us to know the answer to that question. What's so great about Melchizedek? And if we're going to be able to answer that, we need to understand, we need to, be, we need to see the man Melchizedek, we need to see the offices of Melchizedek in order that we will be able to see the greatness of Melchizedek. So that's what we're going to look at this morning. So let's look at the man Melchizedek in verses 1 through 3. Look at verse 1. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. So now turn to Genesis 14. We're going to look at Melchizedek and we're going to start by thinking about Abraham. We're introduced to Abraham in Genesis 12. Genesis 12 is one of the most important chapters in the Bible. It's in Genesis 12 that Abram, Abraham, who's Abram at that point, meets God, and God promises him land and offspring and worldwide blessing. God promises Abraham that he is going to bless all the families of the earth through him. And in Genesis 12, uh, obeying God, uh, trusting God, Abraham travels from his country, and he travels south to Canaan with his whole family, his whole household. And he's not there very long because a famine uh, takes place, and during that famine he goes down to Egypt, and uh, you're probably familiar with the story of, of uh, Abraham and Sarai's running with Pharaoh in Egypt. And we turn to Genesis 13, the famine apparently has... Uh, subsided, and uh, they travel back north to Canaan, back to where they had uh, settled and passed through. And it's at this point in Genesis 14 that Lot and Abraham uh, discover they need to separate. Their flocks are so big that they cannot be in the same place. And so in order to avoid conflict, they separate. Lot chooses to go down uh, to Sodom in the Jordan Valley, and Abraham remains in Canaan. Which brings us to Genesis 14, and in, in Genesis 14, we begin with uh, a, kind of a, a zoom-out picture of, of what's taking place in sort of the geopolitical uh, sphere here with, with all these kingdoms surrounding Abraham and Lot. Uh, apparently, many of these kingdoms had been subservient to a powerful king in the north named uh, Chedorlaomer. And so for 12 years, it says they served Chedorlaomer until they apparently uh, had had enough. And in the 13th year, they, uh, they rebelled. Uh, probably they stopped sending money was the biggest thing they uh, stopped. And in the 14th year, Chedorlaomer assembles three other kings in the north and comes down to teach all these kingdoms a lesson. These rebellious kingdoms. So he comes down with his uh, three other kings, and together they defeat the Rephaim, 
It says they defeat the Zuzim people, they defeat the Amim, and they defeat the Horites uh, before turning around to head back home. And on the way back home, they defeat the Amalekites and they defeat the Amorites. Uh, and it's at this point that the king of Sodom realizes, uh, he gets word of what's, what's happened by this point, and uh, he has an idea of what's probably coming for him. So, uh, being the uh, clever king that he is, he assembles uh, four other kingdoms together with him so that they're ready when Chedorlaomer shows up. So that's what they do. They band, they band together. So it's four versus five. The four kings with Chedorlaomer, with the five, with the king of Sodom. But the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah, they lose to Chedorlaomer. And that's where, that's where Abraham comes in here, comes back into the picture here in Genesis 14. So starting in verse 10 of Genesis 14, here's what we read. Now the valley of Sidim was full of bitumen pits. And as the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled, some fell into them, and the rest fled to the hill country. So the enemy took all the possessions of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their provisions and went their way. They also took Lot, the son of Abram's brother, who was dwelling in Sodom, and his possessions and went their way. Then one who had escaped came and told Abram the Hebrew, who was living by the oaks of Mamre the Amorite, brother of Eschol and Aner. These were allies of Abram. When Abram heard that his kinsmen had been taken captive, he led forth his trained men born in his house, 318 of them, and went in pursuit as far as Dan. And he divided his forces against them by the night. And he and his servants or he and his servants, and defeated them and pursued, pursued them to Hobah, north of Damascus. Then he brought back all the possessions and also brought back his kinsman Lot with his possessions and the women and the people. Now here's where we get to the point where Melchizedek comes into the picture. We're going to keep reading here, but we're going to read this the way I've heard D.A. Carson read it before. We're going to skip verses 18 through 20 here. Okay, so just jump from 17 to 21. So picking back up here in verse 17. After his return from the defeat of Chedorlaomer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Shaveh, that is the king's valley. And the king of Sodom said to Abram, give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted my hand to the Lord, God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. I will take nothing but what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who went with me. Let Anair, Eskol, and Mamre take their share. And the point of skipping those three verses here is that you can take verses 18 through 20 out of the narrative and the narrative still makes complete sense. You could remove those verses and you'd never be asking, hey, well, so what, what, happened, uh, what happened in the middle there? You, you, nothing would be missed. Uh, Abram, he goes and he pursues Chedorlaomer. Uh, he recovers Lot and his household and he returns with uh, his people and, and the provisions taken from Sodom and Gomorrah. Uh, he connects back with the king of Sodom again, uh, probably licking his wounds from defeat. And the king of Sodom uh, offers him this, this compensation, and Abraham refuses it, and uh, there you go. That's, that's the end of the story. But stuck in the middle of this narrative are these three verses. 
where this obscure, mysterious figure appears. And then he disappears and he's gone. So who is this figure and why does Moses, the human author of Genesis, take the time to tell us about him here? Let's look at these verses here. Going back to verse 17. After his return from the defeat of Chedorlaomer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Shaveh, that is the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. So just three things to note here quickly. It's the only three things we, we can note. Melchizedek brings out bread and wine to feed them after they get back. He blesses Abraham in the name of the Most High God, and he receives from Abram an offering, a tithe. That is Melchizedek's shining moment in Scripture. He brings out food, he gives a blessing, and he receives a tithe. Behold, the greatest figure in the Old Testament. Melchizedek is referenced one other time in the Old Testament, a thousand years later, in a psalm written by King David. If you want to turn to Psalm 110 quickly. We're not going to spend very much time looking at this, but just notice before we read the first four verses of Psalm 110, Psalm 110 is the most quoted psalm in the New Testament. Psalm 110. The Lord says to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments. From the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. Then verse 4, here's where we have it. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Melchizedek, that strange, mysterious figure who Abraham had to run in a thousand years ago after he defeated Chedorlaomer. David, David is writing this psalm, Psalm 110. He's writing about the coming Davidic king. And, and verse 4 stands out as odd here. Because as he's describing the coming Davidic king, he says here, the Lord swears you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Now, kings and priests are very, very important in the Old Testament, in, in the Bible, but uh, particularly in Israel, they're always separate. Virtually, they're always separate. We, we know that the, the, the priests are supposed to come from the tribe of Levi, and uh, the kings are at least supposed to come from the tribe of, of Judah. So that's the, the other reverence to Melchizedek in the Old Testament. Those are the only two places his name appears. So we have this connection to Abraham in history, and then we have this connection to King David in prophecy. And finally, we also have another connection to the Son of God. But we need to turn back to Hebrews 7 to see that. Melchizedek has this connection to the Son of God. Look at verse 3 in Hebrews 7. 
He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. What is the author of Hebrews getting at here? Who is this Melchizedek? We might even say, what is this Melchizedek? There's some Jewish traditions, you know, you think, uh, Melchizedek's written about in Genesis by Moses. Uh, the, the Israelites have a lot of time to wonder and think about who this Melchizedek figure was who blessed their patriarch, Abraham. There, so there's some Jewish traditions that thought of Melchizedek as actually an angelic figure, that he wasn't a man at all. Uh, there's some Christians who believe that Melchizedek, this was an, an appearing of Jesus Christ in the Old Testament, uh, but I don't think either one of those is what the author of Hebrews is trying to tell us about Melchizedek here. I don't think he's trying to tell us that this is Jesus, the Son of God incarnate in Genesis 14. There's a number of reasons. Uh, we'll just look at one here, probably the strong, one of the strongest ones. Uh, if you look at verse 3, Melchizedek is described as one resembling the Son of God. Resembling the Son of God, continuing as a priest forever. So if Melchizedek resembles the Son of God, uh, your translation might say he's made like the Son of God. It's, it's quite literally having been made like or having been made similar to the Son of God. Uh, he, it's clear that he's not, he's not equating these two figures. He's comparing Melchizedek and the Son of God. So we shouldn't be asking, is this the Son of God? We should be asking, how does the author of Hebrews see Melchizedek as resembling the Son of God. When we ask that question, the passage, the passage makes sense. That there is nothing in the text, either in the Old Testament or the New Testament, uh, that, that should make us doubt that Melchizedek was not a man who lived in history. Uh, n- there's nothing that, that precludes the idea that there could have been a, a man, a contemporary of Abraham, who worshipped the one true God in the ancient Near East. So, so how does Melchizedek resemble the Son of God, who, who is without father, who is without mother, without genealogy, etc.? Here, here's how. Because of how Melchizedek appears in the narrative of Genesis, that's how he resembles the Son of God. It's how he appears in the narrative. If you're an important figure in the Old Testament, we know something about where you come from. Right? Some of our favorite chapters are the genealogies in the Old Testament. And those are important because they're telling us uh, who important people are. And they're also grounding this in history. These aren't just sort of mythical, legendary figures. These are people who have family trees, just like, just like you and me. But in contrast to the other important figures in the Old Testament, Scripture records for Melchizedek, no father, no mother, no genealogy whatsoever. There, there's no account of his birth. There's no account of his death. He appears and he disappears. And the reader is left with the effect that, that, that this is some priesthood that just apparently never ends. Now, of course, you assume it ends just because every single priest dies. But the effect is, well, apparently this priesthood just, just keeps on going. We never hear about the end of it. So he resembles the Son of God in, in the way that he's presented in the narrative. Another, another way to think of Melchizedek is, is, is as a type of Christ. Types of Christ in the Old Testament, they prefigure Christ. They're, they're like shadows. Uh, and and, and Christ, they always ramp up to Christ. Christ is always the ultimate expression of these things, of, of, of these types. So 
Uh, Looking at it in that light, Melchizedek served as a priest who appeared to have no beginning and to serve forever. But Christ is a priest who actually has no beginning. By virtue of his divine nature, he actually continues as priest forever. Not just in the narrative, but in reality. So who is Melchizedek? He's this obscure, mysterious figure who interacted with Abraham in Genesis 14. Uh, He is the one referenced in David's messianic prophecy in Psalm 110, and he's one who resembles the Son of God in the Old Testament narrative, according to the author of Hebrews in chapter 7. But in order to fully understand, in order to fully see Melchizedek, we also need to understand the offices that he holds. So we turn secondly to the offices of Melchizedek. The author of Hebrews wants us to know that the offices of Melchizedek are important. He he, uh, puts those right at the front uh, of uh, describing this guy in uh, verse 1 of Hebrews, Hebrews 7. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of God most high. He is both king and priest. So first of all, again, what is a king in scripture? A king is someone who exercises Dominion is someone who has dominion or, or a kingdom. Uh, and someone with a kingdom or a dominion has responsibility to rule over that. And the tool that they use to rule over that is authority. So a king is someone who exercises authority, ruling over their dominion or ruling over their kingdom. Now we tend to have a negative view of kings today. Uh, even today we think about this. There is a national celebration today nationwide, and we're celebrating the fact that 245 years ago today, the Second Continental Congress adopted the Declaration of Independence. And they declared independence from who? From King George. So packed into today is literally a celebration of declaring independence from a king. And not just a king, but... uh, the English Parliament as well, but that's 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 another story. But they are declaring independence from from King George. So are kings bad? God made the first man a king, and the first woman a queen. He gave them dominion. He gave them a kingdom and authority to subdue it, and even told them to start a royal dynasty. Throughout the Bible, God is not anti-king. In fact, God uses kings critically in his plan of redemption. In fact, God is even himself referred to as a king in Psalms like Psalm 47.2. For the Lord, the Most High, is to be feared, a great king over all the earth. So think kings can't be inherently bad. Even the Second Continental Congress did not think kings were inherently bad. They didn't have a problem with kings unconditionally. They had a problem with a king that they perceived as tyrannical. The problem isn't kings categorically. The problem is what happens when when authority hits a fallen, sinful human heart. Power corrupts is what we say. Why does power corrupt? Is power evil? No, power is not evil. We are evil. And history is filled with example after example of example of bad kings with bad hearts who abuse power. But there are exceptions. And Melchizedek is an exception. Look at verse 2. 
The author of Hebrews says, he is first by translation of his name, king of righteousness. Melchizedek's name is literally a mashing together of two Hebrew words, the Hebrew word for king and the Hebrew word for righteous. So his name literally is king righteous or my king is righteous. And it's interesting to note, we think back to Genesis and this conflicts, the conflicts between all these kings and Chedorlaomer and the, and the king of Sodom. Here we have Melchizedek, the king of righteousness, standing out in the narrative in the midst of all these wicked kings. But he's not only characterized by righteousness, if you look at the end of verse 2, and then he is also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. So Salem or Shalem in Hebrew is closely related to the word shalom, which you've probably heard before, meaning peace. And although we don't know for sure, it is, it's quite likely that Salem was located in the same place that Jerusalem would be found many years later. So Melchizedek is a king, and the author of Hebrews wants us to see the significance of his name and the significance of his kingdom. This is not just any king. This is the king of righteousness, the king of peace. And if that isn't enough, Melchizedek does not only hold the office of king, he also holds the office of priest. If you look at verse 1, the author of Hebrews identifies him as priest of God most high. Moses writes the exact same thing just as clearly in Genesis 14. So he's remembered what a king is. Let's, let's remind ourselves what a priest is. A priest is fundamentally a mediator between God and human beings. We know most about priests through the Is Israelite, the Levitical priesthood. In the Old Testament, the Israelite priests were people who were chosen by God, who were to go up to the temple and meet with God on behalf of the people. Uh, they had to offer sacrifices in order to uh, achieve both cleansing for themselves and to achieve forgiveness of sins before God. So they were making sacrifices. They were bling, bringing the blood to God. And there was also their job to understand the law and to interpret the law and then to instruct the people in the law. And all those jobs have this mediating rule where they stand between God and the people. Keep in mind that Melchizedek is priest 500 years before the Levitical priesthood, before Leviticus is even, is even written. So, so it's not as if he's ministering in the tabernacle somewhere, something like that. He, he, is, he is serving as a mediator between God and others. And we see this playing out in the blessing of Abraham. Melchizedek can mediate the blessing of God to Abraham because of his role as a genuine priest. So Melchizedek holds the office of king, and he holds the office of, of priest. And understanding the man Melchizedek and the offices that he holds, this sets us up to understand the greatness of, of, Mel, of Melchizedek. All that is important if we're going to see Melchizedek clearly. The author of Hebrews wants us to see him. Look at verse 4 where the author writes, See how great this man was, to whom Abraham the patriarch gave a tenth of his spoils. We want to heed this command. This is an imperative that the author of Hebrews is giving the audience here. We want to heed this command. In order to see him, we need to look at the Levitical priesthood, and we need to look at the economy of, of blessings here in verses 4 through 10. 
So here's what the author of Hebrews points out in verse 5 about the Levitical priesthood. And those descendants of Levi who receive the priestly office have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people, that is, from their brothers, though these are also descended from Abraham. The Levites in Israel were set apart to serve God full-time in temple service. And and what the other 12 tribes were to do, they were to to give a tithe to God through the priests, which would be distributed among the Levites, to support them uh, in their full-time service to the temple and also support the needs of support the needs of the temple. So just for example, Numbers 18:21, God says, To the Levites I have given every tithe in Israel for an inheritance in return for their service that they do, their service in the tent of meeting. Uh, so the descendants of Levi had this had this priestly office, and they were commanded in the law to take a tithe from their brothers, the descendants of Abraham. And so there's a connection here between the Levites and Melchizedek. They both received tithes, right? Simple, simple enough. We got tithes in both, in both areas here. The author of Hebrews also wants us to know something about the economy of blessings. Look at verse 7. What is the economy of blessings? Well, it is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. In the Bible, the one doing the blessing is greater than the one receiving the blessing. We think of what uh, uh, Jesus' words recorded in in Acts 20.35 are, it is more blessed to give than to receive. And ultimately, we know this must be true because God is the ultimate blesser, right? Who who blesses more than God? So this, this, this makes God supreme as the ultimate blesser. If the people who receive the blessing are greater than the ones who give the blessing, that would make us superior to God. But no, that, that's crazy. You know, it's beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. And notice, going back to the story in Genesis 14 with Abraham, Abraham doesn't accept payment from the king of Sodom for recovering his people and his property. Why not? Why doesn't Abraham cash in here? This is a big trip up to Dan with 318 of his people. Why doesn't doesn't he receive this from Sodom? Well, there's probably a few reasons, but at least one reason is he doesn't want to put the king of Sodom in the position of the one who blesses him. He doesn't want the king of Sodom to be able to say, I made Abraham rich. And in another sense, he doesn't acknowledge the king of Sodom as superior by allowing him to bless him. However, that's not the case with Melchizedek. There's a different exchange in Genesis 14 with Melchizedek. The author of Hebrews wants us to see the greatness of Melchizedek. So here's what he starts pointing out. Verse 4, for example, Abraham gave Melchizedek Melchizedek a tenth of his spoils. Verse 6, Melchizedek received tithes from Abraham. What we can infer from this is Abraham seems to be acknowledging someone greater than himself. And Melchizedek seems to be self-consciously aware of his superiority to Abraham. A tithe is, is different than a blessing. Right? Abraham's giving this tithe to, to Melchizedek isn't blessing Melchizedek. This is, he's recognizing something greater than himself in, in a tithe. It's, it's, it's different from a blessing. 
but then the, the author of Hebrews in verses 9 and 10, he also makes this connection with the Levites, with the Levitical priesthood. Now, now, now the Levites, they didn't actually literally give Melchizedek a tithe. That'd be physically and chronologically impossible. But look at verses 9 and 10. Even the way the author phrases it here. One might even say that Levi himself, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham. For he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. The point here is to answer the question, which priesthood is greater? Which priesthood is more significant? The priesthood of Levi or the priesthood of Melchizedek? And in these ancient cultures, uh, it's, it's helpful to know your, your ancestors are always superior to you. The, the ancestors are superior and the descendants are inferior. So it's kind of connected to the economy of blessings here where uh, it's this idea that you're blessed by the lives of those who've come before you. So, so I would be greater than my son. My father's greater than me. My grandfather's greater than my father, and uh, and so on. So, if Abraham paid tithes to Melchizedek, and Levi and his descendants are in his loins, they're coming along after Abraham, and and they're so to speak paying tithes to Melchizedek. The priesthood of Levi, as important as it is. It's a whole book of the Bible devoted to it, the priesthood of Levi, our favorite one, right? Leviticus. As important as the priesthood of Levi is, it is lower in status than the priesthood of Melchizedek. But that's not all. Melchizedek didn't just receive tithes from Abraham. Melchizedek blessed Abraham. And in the economy of blessings, verse 7 says that the inferior is blessed by the superior. Now, now think about the significance here, okay? This is where I'm going to lose you, but stay with me right here. This is good, okay? Chedorlaomer comes down from the north. This great, mighty, wicked king comes down from the north. He defeats the Rephaim and their king. He defeats the Zuzim in their king. He defeats the Amim in their king. He defeats the Horites in their king. He defeats the Amalekites and their king. He defeats the Amorites and their king. And then the king of Sodom teams up with, we get the king of Sodom here with the king of Gomorrah and his army, the king of Edmah and his army, the king of Zeboim and his army, the king of Zoar and his army. And what happens? They end up fleeing King Chedorlaomer. Automatic Automatic defeat. Chedorlaomer ends up leaving with their people, their property, and he decides to take Abraham's nephew Lot along also who is living in Sodom. Abraham hears what happened. He gathers his small army, 318 men, pursues Chedorlaomer all the way north up to Dan, and what happens? Victory. Chedorlaomer flees Abraham. Abraham returns with Lot. Abraham returns with the people and the property of Sodom. This right here in Genesis 14 is one of the highest moments in Abraham's life. Abraham has earned himself a place among kings in this whole region. It would be totally legitimate to ask at this moment, who is greater than Abraham? Chedorlaomer is running for his life. Who is greater than Abraham? 
And it's right at this moment, the shining moment in Abraham's life, out comes Melchizedek. And Abraham pauses. And we don't have all the details. In fact, we know almost nothing about him. But Abraham knows he is in the presence of greatness. Abraham doesn't bless Melchizedek. Melchizedek blesses Abraham. As great as Abraham is, as critical he is in redemptive history, as foundational as he is, even though he is the one who, verse 6, had the promises from God. Melchizedek is the priest king. Melchizedek is the king of righteousness. Melchizedek is the king of peace. Melchizedek is the priest of the one true most high God. And he's the greatest one because he resembles the greatest one who is to come, the true king of righteousness, the true king of peace, the true priest of God most high who continues as priest forever, the one whom, verse 8, it is testified that he lives as we look at the the outlines of Melchizedek in the Old Testament, we see the figure that Christ fills and fulfills. And the author wants us to turn, as we look at Melchizedek, he wants us to see Melchizedek and turn and worship Christ. This isn't just a meticulously arranged story. This is a priest king we desperately need. Where are you this morning? This isn't just a great story. Are you weary and tired? Are you guilty and burdened with sin? Are you failing and faltering? Are you confused and discouraged? Are you worried and anxious? Are you even maybe prideful and selfish? What state are you in this morning? Come to the priest king. Worship the priest king. Do you want blessing? Do you want to be blessed? Admit, acknowledge your inferiority, acknowledge your weakness, confess your sins. Jesus says in Luke 5, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Come to the priest king. Worship the priest king and he will bless you. We all long for peace. And we seek peace. We try to establish peace in our lives. If you've heard about this concept of shalom, the what shalom means in the Old Testament, it's like full, uh, holistic, comprehensive well-being. We, we desperately want that, and we seek it in all kinds of places. We seek it in entertainment. We seek it in food and alcohol. We seek it on our phones. We seek it through our jobs. We seek it in our families and relationships. We, we try to achieve peace through romance, through sex, sensuality. We, we try to seek it through discovering ourselves, through figuring out what our truth is. We seek peace everywhere. But as one commentator puts it, where sin reigns, there can never be peace. 
where sin reigns, there can never be peace. The only place you can find peace is in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. The only place you can find righteousness is in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Come to the priest king. Worship the priest king, the king of righteousness, the king of peace. Who is the greatest figure in the Old Testament? I never know the actual answer to that. Maybe there isn't one single answer, but we know it's not Abraham. Abraham was blessed by one greater than himself, Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God. Great Melchizedek in his resemblance of the Son of God without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, he continues a priest forever. Let's pray. Father, we have this persistent urge to evaluate, to rank, and to, and to, to rate things, uh, to find the best, to achieve the top, to know Who's on top? Ultimately, we have this ability so that when we see you, we, we can see that there is none greater. Father, we joyfully acknowledge this morning that there is none greater than you. We rightly sing, glory be to God alone. Holy, 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 there is none beside thee. Father, help us to see Help us to see you in the, in the person and work of your Son. Father, fill us with your Spirit so that when we read of figures like Melchizedek, we turn and we worship Christ. We thank you that because he is the true King of righteousness, the true King of peace, the true great high priest who has ascended into the heavens, guilty, vile, and helpless sinners like us can have assurance of full atonement because of the spotless Lamb of God who now intercedes for us. And as long as He stands there interceding for us, no tongue can tell us to leave. So we cry this morning, Hallelujah, what a Savior. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.